It's a big world, and survival depends on the quality of your decisions. You need a diverse viewpoint to see all the opportunities around you. Now is the time, and this is the place. This is the Ellis Martin Report. When you hear us mention companies doing any kind of business, there's a large probability, if not a certainty, that the Ellis Martin Report is compensated for that mention. We're telling you this so you can make your own independent evaluation of these opportunities. Also, as with most leading-edge opportunities, if you can't afford to potentially lose your investment, don't risk it. We make no personal recommendations about any sponsor on this program. We encourage you to do your own research. Yes, we do as much due diligence as possible, but nothing is completely predictable in this big world. Here's an idea. Subscribe to the Ellis Martin Report. It's easy and it's free. Visit us at ellismartinreport.com. And now, here's Ellis Martin. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation with Grant Ewing, CEO of Rock Ridge Resources, trading as ROCK on the TSX Venture Exchange. Rock Ridge Resources is a new public mineral exploration company focused on the acquisition, exploration, and development of mineral resource properties in Canada, specifically copper and battery metal projects. The company's flagship is the Knife Lake Project, located in Saskatchewan, which is ranked as one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. Grant, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Ellis. Good to be here. I think our audience would appreciate a overall look at the company. What is Rockridge Resources? Rockridge is a mineral exploration company. Our strategy as a mineral exploration company is to focus in world-class mining camps, areas where we have proven geologic potential. And mining-friendly jurisdictions is a very important component of our strategy, operating in mining-friendly jurisdictions. And nearby infrastructure sort of summarizes uh, the last component of what we like to see with our projects. Rockridge has two projects. Our Knife Lake project is located in eastern Saskatchewan. It's BMS project that is copper dominated. And we have a high-grade gold project in Ontario, just southwest of the Timmins Gold Camp. So we're going to talk about the recent results from the summer drilling program in Saskatchewan, the Knife Lake project, right? That's correct. So our Knife Lake project is our core uh, base metals project. It's located in Saskatchewan, northwest of the prolific Flinflon Metals Belt. And we have a similar geologic setting at the Flinflon Snow Lake region, where there's been several world-class discoveries developed over the last 100 years or so, and continuous mining over that time frame as well. So at Knife Lake, we have an extensive land holding approximately 80,000 hectares, and we have one known deposit, the Knife Lake deposit, discovered back in the 60s, and it was grilled off over the ensuing years. But for the last 20 years, very little work has been done in the region at all, and that was due to various reasons, including poor metal prices. So Rockridge has the option to earn 100% interest in the Knife deposit, the Knife Lake project. And our first step when we acquired this project was to complete the inaugural resource estimate we did that earlier in the year, and then what we did was commence regional exploration program during the summer months as we view the land holding as having excellent exploration potential. What are the priority targets that you've identified? So our summer program really focused on the area within close proximity to our known Knife Lake deposit. About a six-kilometer radius around the project is where we centered initially. Within that area, we worked on three high-priority target areas and brought them to drill-ready status through the summer program. 
And this leaves about eight remaining high-priority targets on the claim holdings that will get assessed in future programs. And all of these targets were based on coincident anomalies of, of the geophysics, mapping, sampling data. They really lead us to believe we've got excellent, compelling targets identified and robust discovery potential in this area right around the knife deposit. The known knife lake deposit occurs very near surface, so it was a relatively easy discovery back in the late 60s. It would be an excellent starter operation for a future mining operation as it's the higher grade portion of that deposit is right at surface. So our goal now is to find other deposits in the near vicinity and potentially advance this to the mining status in the future years. What can we look forward in Q1, Q2 of next year, 2020? program that we completed in the summer really refined these targets. So now we have several that are ready for a drill. Our plan is to work toward a drilling campaign later next year in 2020. We've also got a, a very interesting high-grade gold project as one of our core assets in the company, and that's located in the Tins District in Ontario. And there we're planning for a drill program in the early part of 2020. And this would be the first drill program in over, I would say, about 20 years of that project. And what we have there is as a gold structure defined historically, weekly drilled in the top section of it. We have a six and a half gram over eight meter intercept that's wide open to test and extend the depth. So really, you've got precious metals in Ontario, base metals in Saskatchewan, which really sets you up for whichever way the wind blows in the resource sector, correct? Yeah, and that's a bit of a unique mix for a junior company, but we quite like having our commodities, the focus being copper and gold. Often the the two commodities might not be in favor together. And if that's the case, we can focus on one project while the other one's being prepared for future work. And Grant, tell us about the share structure of the company. We have a very tight share structure, approximately 25 million shares outstanding. Management and insiders hold 12 or 13% of that. And so we have a a very tight float and our market cap today is approximately $4 million, so a small market cap. We're really a discovery-driven company. So with success in our drilling programs, we see the potential to create some significant shareholder value with this company. Let's take a look at the management team. Who have you got on board? Because as anyone knows, really, it is all about the team. Yeah, we've got five on the board of directors. All these gentlemen on the board are seasoned mineral exploration people. We cover all aspects of the business, finance, corporate development, technical people. So we really have a group that has proven success in this business. Jordan Trimble is our president. He's on the board. Richard Kuzmerski is our technical director on the board. And also we have Jim Pettit and Don Houston on the board, as well as Joe Gallucci. So a real seasoned board of directors, a great setup for a junior exploration company. Well, Grant, it's great to speak with you again. Thanks so much for joining me today in the program. Thank you, Alice. I've been speaking with Grant Ewing, CEO of Rock Ridge Resources, trading as ROCK on the TSX Venture Exchange. For more information on Rock Ridge Resources, go to the company's website, rockridgeresourcesltd.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Subscribe to the Ellis Martin Newsletter. It's free. Go to ellismartinreport.com and fill out the quick and easy pop-up form. High-quality but undervalued mining stocks are finally starting to attract the attention of investors. Get the latest news and resource stock investment opportunities with a subscription to Resource World magazine. Published six times a year, Resource World features in-depth articles on mineral area plays, commodities of interest, and valuable investment insights by highly qualified market analysts, geologists, and mining journalists. Go to resourceworld.com to find out more. 
Subscribe to the Ellis Martin Newsletter. It's free. Go to ellismartinreport.com and fill out the quick and easy pop-up form. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation with Nav Dhaliwal, the president and CEO of Gatling Exploration, trading as GATGF in the U.S. and on the TSX Venture Exchange as GTR. Gatling Exploration is a Canadian gold exploration company focused on advancing the larder project located in the prolific Abitibi Greenstone Belt in northern Ontario. The larder property hosts three high-grade gold deposits along the Cadillac Larder Lake Break, 35 kilometers east of Kirkland Lake. Nav, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having us, Ellis. Give our audience an update of your company since it's been a while since we've spoken. Gatling Exploration is located in Ontario along the Cadillac Larder Fall. Historically, this has been a very prolific gold camp producing over 70 million ounces. What Gatling has done is comprised three the separate deposits, the Bear Lake deposit, Sheminis, and the Fernland, giving us a strike length, or what we see is, in theory, a strike length of four and a half kilometers. We believe all three of these deposits have continuity. And just recently with our news release that we just put out here today and the one previous has shown we've connected two out of the three. And for a lot of the listening audience should understand when you're looking at Gatling and looking at junior exploration companies, there's boxes to be checked off here, Ellis. And I believe we've done one heck of a job accomplishing that. We've underpinned the value of the land package assembly that we put together with 917,000 ounces at five and a half grams per ton. That's an inferred resource on the Bear Lake deposit, the Sheminis having 40,000 indicated ounces. And those two deposits with the last two years of releases, we've shown there's mineralization connecting the two deposits. So again, we've connected two of the three deposits. We've been out there aggressively drilling on our 35,000 meter drill program. We're well-funded to get us into the new year and continue on showcasing our strength in this marketplace. And you recently uplisted on the QX. That's correct. Yeah, given a wider platform for not only Canadians, but also throughout North America now. Once they understand and see that there's tremendous value here left in Gatling, and we're given all platforms for people to invest with us. Well, it's a great opportunity for our big North American audience, for sure. So what can we look for in Q1, Q2 of 2020 now? Continuing drilling. We've got a proven team here from management to the exploration side. I've really got to commend our exploration team that has been doing a fantastic job. The investing community out there can look forward to more results from us and aggressively trying to put together our theory of four and a half kilometers in three of these deposits all uh, equaling one. And let's remind our audience of the share structure, which I think is really important. Absolutely. There's 45, call it 46 million shares outstanding. There's no worn overhang. There's no private placement that anybody will be seeing here shortly. And again, here's the thing is we haven't really got any analyst coverage. This is a ground floor opportunity for the investing community out there. When you're looking at the exploration, especially gold in Canada, Canada being one of the most prolific mining friendliest jurisdictions in the world, a lot of people are going to start focusing and especially with Gatling positioned where it is, we're the only junior exploration company in this region. We've consolidated the east end of this Cadillac Larder. We're contiguous with an Eagle Eagles Queenston project, one of their largest exploration projects they currently are underway with. So again, all the boxes for us are checking off as we continue progressing. Well, it's always a pleasure to speak with you, my friend. I look forward to seeing you in the not too distant future. Thanks so much for joining me today on the program. Always a pleasure. Thank you so much, Ellis. We look forward to talking to you guys soon. 
I've been speaking with Nav Dollywall, the president and CEO of Gatling Exploration, trading as GATGF in the U.S. and on the TSX Venture Exchange as GTR. Do your own research on this company first by going to their website, GatlingExploration.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Gatling Exploration is a paid sponsor of the Ellis Martin Report. Subscribe to the Ellis Martin Newsletter. It's free. Go to ellismartinreport.com and fill out the quick and easy pop-up form. I'm Ellis Martin. I usually deal with fact-based reality on this program, no matter what my personal beliefs are concerning politics, the great unknown, and speculation on most anything outside the normal parameters of what is considered reasonable journalism. I usually don't discuss it on the radio show or the podcast, and I won't start now. Having said that, I'd like you to meet Dr. Michael P. Masters. Dr. Masters is a tenured professor of biological anthropology at Montana Tech at the University of Montana. He's taught biological and cultural anthropology, economic anthropology, archaeology, sociology, and cultural diversity at various colleges and universities in central Ohio and southwest Montana. In other words, Dr. Masters is a scientist, an academic, teaching real science. He wrote a book that I happen to read because I have a personal interest in such things. Book? Identified Flying Objects, a Multidisciplinary Academic Approach to the UFO Phenomenon. It's available on Amazon and the audio version is downloadable on Audible. Dr. Masters claims that UFOs are not space aliens from a distant galaxy. They are time travelers from our distant future visiting us for a variety of reasons. You'll hear today in this segment why his theory is in fact very plausible. The ships hovering our skies and taunting our military may be, in fact, time machines. Michael, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for joining me today. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. I typically don't do interviews on this program, Mike, related to otherworldly issues, UFOs, ghosts, or anything that goes bump in the night. I discuss fact-based issues, and if it's anything related to science fiction at all, it needs to be science fact. Doesn't mean I don't like science fiction or enjoy a good sci-fi film. I've read hundreds of books as a kid, scores of movies seen. There are many other radio hosts or podcasters who delve into the subject publicly. I listen to them. It's just not me. It's not my thing. Not my wheelhouse as a broadcast journalist. However, I am and have been for most of my life obsessed with time travel. There's a few reasons why, and I may go into it in this program. But again, I wouldn't publicly chat about it on the airwaves without speaking to a scientist, and you are a scientist. I've attended one MUFON conference just once. I have a couple of friends in the space, or I did, so to speak. I thought it was all nonsense, and I could never wrap my head around what I thought was the business of ufology. But for me, it's not been real journalism or science. And here you are, Dr. Masters, the author of Identified Flying Objects, a multidisciplinary academic approach to the UFO phenomenon. You've completely debunked the concept of so-called aliens ever visiting our planet, calling these thousands and thousands of sightings, visitations, so-called abductions, body intrusions, the work of time travelers. These beings with enlarged craniums, smaller faces, no body hair, call them what you will, but call them, please, our biological descendants from the distant future. How did you land at this conclusion? And a short answer is not welcome, sir. (laughs) Well, I was actually really young, and I heard a story my father was telling. I was eight years old, and he was recounting a UFO 
encounter essentially that he had before I was born, but he was relaying the course of events to some friends that were over at our house that night. And I remember listening from the stairs and just kind of having a sense of wonder and excitement about what he was describing. It wasn't anything that I had any experience with previously. And uh, not long after that, he got a book called Communion by Whitley Strieber. And on the covers, that quintessential archetypal alien form that you just described with the big head and big eyes and small face and whatnot. And I had this thought, kind of this mental image of that alien form, a modern human form, and then what I would come to know is a hominin, ancestral form. Just wondering if there could be some sort of phylogenetic connection there, some relationship through time in which they are simply us from the future coming back through time to study their own ancestral past. So that's where you went immediately at the age of eight, and then you became an anthropologist? Yeah, I mean, it was a pretty serendipitous experience, just kind of a mental image and flash of awareness, I guess you could say. And then, yeah, I decided to pursue it over the next 30 plus years, I guess. What started out in physics and astronomy as an undergraduate at Ohio University in Southern Ohio, and then uh, switched to anthropology about my sophomore, junior year, and finished out with a PhD in biological anthropology in 2009. How much time did you spend on physics in any of your studies, astrophysics? Well, early on, even though I switched majors and didn't end up getting an advanced degree in physics, I've always kept up with the literature, especially as it relates to general relativity, special relativity, different aspects of the birth of the universe, cosmology, astrophysics. And it's always been an interest of mine. I guess you'd have to call it more of a hobby since it's not my main field of study. But even to this day, I definitely follow what comes out in the mainstream media and also with Arvix and other places where a lot of cutting-edge research is being published. So it's still a passion project for me in that regard. It's a really interesting field, especially with quantum computing and just constantly finding out more about quantum mechanics and all of its oddities. It's a really interesting area of study. I didn't think I was going to do this, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to discuss briefly an experience I had in 1961 where I was in my bedroom in my home in upstate New York, about 60 miles north of New York City, and I had an experience that involved lights and what people like to call anal probing. (laughs) I don't know what else you can call it. And then for subsequent weeks after that, sometimes in the middle of the night, I would be in a white room with, looked like doctors with smocks on, getting skin grafts. And it never made any sense to me at all my entire life. Never made any sense, and while I was never really infatuated with aliens per se, I've obsessed about time travel, and I've had two experiences in my life. And something about what you just said just completely resonated with that, that you went straight to that after your father's encounter. Are you positive you were no part of that on any level? You have no memories of anything when you were a child? I don't, actually. I've never even seen a UFO, which is kind of frustrating at this point in my life. But I absolutely commend you for talking about it. And a big part of why I wrote this book was to offer a conservative, down-to-earth explanation for it that would hopefully help break through some of the stigma that's been constructed around this topic over the last 60, 70 years. And I think if more of us 
did exactly what you just did and, and came out and described the experiences that we have and not have to worry about how other people view us or just this instant dismissal that we've grown accustomed to in talking about this subject, then we could learn so much more and we could push forward with this. And and yeah, the, the experience you described is so common among thousands and thousands of people all over the world and over long periods of time. And, and honestly, it, it really fits into this time travel model well, because as a paleoanthropologist, I've worked all over the world and digging up fossils and artifacts and features. And, and if we had the technology now to just travel back through time to observe these people and hominins and cultures at the time they existed, we could learn so much more from them. And it really makes sense to me, these abduction reports too, because the things described are exactly what I would do as a biological anthropologist if I had access to these technologies. I'd be taking skin samples and hair samples and, and fecal samples, which is largely where the anal probing thing likely comes from, and do all of these biomedical examination type things in the same way they're described by people who have had a contact experience. So, no, even though I haven't, even though I haven't experienced anything even odd that I can remember, I definitely understand just how many people have, and I believe them, and we should all believe them, and especially focus on the consistency across all of these different accounts and understand that these people are looking for answers, trying to find out what's going on, what's happened to them. And the more we talk about it and share these things, the more we can all come to understand the phenomenon better. I remember asking my mom when I was older, in my 30s, why all the enemas? <laughs> and she said, what are you talking about? Because <laughs> that's, that's, exactly, that's exactly what it felt like. And, you know, my parents just had no idea. I've also been sort of obsessed with something else that you went into in great detail, closed time-like curves or CTCs. And I want to talk about that. But before I forget, I grew up, as many of us did, with the uh, Darwinism being the fact and you support that, although I sort of moved away from it because I couldn't understand how these diverse races were able to just be on the same planet together. We don't get along, typically, and we're starting to now, and the races look nothing like each other. But you've explained that, and you've explained it like there's so many different breeds of, of animals, for instance, that it's entirely possible due to the locales and the environment that people develop as they develop it. So we can't say that this planet was seeded by aliens. According to you, it just doesn't make sense. No. And if you look at the long history of life on this planet, we can very clearly see how simple gave rise to slightly more complex over 3.7 billion years since the earliest prokaryotes and, and then eukaryotes about a billion and a half years after that. And yeah, this, there's this long, unbroken chain of continuity across the animal kingdom and across all of the various life forms that exist on this planet. So, yeah, when I hear people talk about how we're the result of extraterrestrials influencing primates or mammals or whatever, we don't need those explanations. It's just adding something extraneous to something that we can already understand in the context of our basic coding system of life, DNA, the nucleotides, and how over time you have different environments selecting for certain traits that are beneficial in those environments. And yeah, over a long enough period of time, it, it's given rise to all of the tremendous abundance of life and the variety that we see among life forms today. 
Is it your contention that our descendants, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years from now, have have breeded so much with each other, almost in an incestuous way, if that they become dysfunctional and are looking to the past, us, for instance, to reinfuse a more diverse DNA into their future? It's definitely a possibility. Yeah, it's, it's something I discuss in the book because a lot of what I try to do, like I said, it's a, a conservative approach to this phenomenon. And instead of trying to speculate about what might happen between now and the future, I mostly just focus on established long-term evolutionary trends in the hominin lineage. What's happened since we became bipedal in the context of long-term morphological changes, cultural, technological changes. And then if these same patterns continue into the future, we are likely to be very similar to what are described as alien beings, or what I call extratempestrials in the book, with the bigger heads, the bigger eyes, small faces, still bipedal, the trait that defines hominins, our lineage, more advanced technology, which has been a dominant trend as well throughout the last 3.3 million years since the first stone tools. But yeah, there's one trend that we see over recent human history, especially the last 500 years, is a homogenization of all of these, what previously were isolated populations, interbreeding groups, isolated gene pools that occasionally came into contact approximately over land, but really beginning with European colonialism about 500 years ago, we've integrated all of those different groups into one large interbreeding population. So if we continue to exist as such, and it's very likely that we will, we would expect to have this genetic homogenization that could eventually, over long enough period of time, result in a situation of global incest, global inbreeding, where we have certain problems that affect reproduction even. And one of the only ways to get new gene variants might be to go into the past and to sample the genome of individuals and groups, haplotypes, that never made it into the future. So that would give us completely novel gene variants that could help us diversify our genome in the future, given that that's the only place they may exist or that we may have access to, especially after we develop the technology to travel backward in time. So these are fact-finding missions and coupled with harvesting missions, potentially, correct? Well, I think at least the abduction reports are, they seem to be scientific in nature. They appear to be data collection missions. And really, that may be the only overt form of interaction that's allowed in the future. There aren't really paradoxes, per se, when you travel back in time and visit the past. But it undoubtedly complicates things. It complicates world lines and interrelationships across different periods of time. But outside of that, there very well could be a time travel tourism aspect to it, where they're the ones that we see kind of hovering around the clouds or up in the sky, where there's not overt interaction in the same way that there is with people being picked up in the middle of the night in remote places, where they clearly still try to be somewhat covert in their activities. But there could be a tourism aspect where people pay money to go back and see different periods of time without interjecting themselves too much into that past. So I think there could be many facets to this phenomenon, but at least the ones where 
people are really coming into contact with other humans, those would seem to be academic in nature. There seems to be some scientific component to that. I don't imagine there's a lot of danger in in that practice because it's not something we're aware of. Although someday I think he alluded to the fact that time travel will just be a natural circumstance of life on earth that everybody's going to be as familiar with it as as cell phones. Did you not allude to that? Yeah, no, it's it's very possible. And and again, if everything is self-consistent and we're moving across time in the same way we move through three-dimensional space, we tend to think of time as linear, moving only from past to future. And so the idea that we could visit the past or that we could change the past complicates our understanding of the reality of time. But in the context of what's known as the block universe or block time, which is the dominant model to explain time and space within physics, all of those moments that exist from the beginning of the Big Bang to the very last moments of matter in the universe are all part of one giant four-dimensional block of space-time where there's still an expansion of the universe, there's still change and movement, but all of those moments, if we could see in four dimensions, we could see them as one giant entity. And it's vast, it's enormous. Obviously, everything within our world and within our solar system, but even beyond, the entire universe exists within this 4D block time. So moving in and out of different regions of time, there's connections, there's this sort of web of interaction that exists, but it doesn't violate any sort of laws of causality or matter or mass. It's hard for us to conceptualize, but within the realm of physics, just one giant self-consistent web of interaction. So yeah, we could potentially at some point, once our species is aware, if this is actually the case, and these are our our time-traveling descendants, once we're aware of it, there's really nothing to stop them from just becoming a part of whatever time period they want to. And I mentioned in the book that we could have different temporal races, what I call temporal ancestry, the same way as you described earlier, we have geographic races that look different from one another because they come from different parts of the world that all exist now. We could have people from different time periods who, the farther out from our present, look more different from us, all interacting at the same specific point in time. So, yeah, it's, it's very possible that that could be the case in the distant future once we're all aware of who they are and why they're here and what they're doing. I often think about the 11th dimension being that where all time is now or it's, it's completely nonlinear and everything extends out from that. And I think that we are evolving into who we're going to be not only as, as a species, but as, as beings. And mm-hmm. you refer to intratemporal communication interaction, I believe. And that's when there's actually discussion, if you will, maybe not verbal, but a blend between the future, the past, the present. And this may fall into a discussion about closed time-like curves, which I wanted to have with you. For me, it's a which came first scenario, the chicken or the egg, or bringing the cart before the horse, metaphorically. And I always thought as a deep thinker that we humans are evolving into our future selves. In fact, if you go back into, I don't know what you've done with theology or or spirituality, and I'm not a woo-woo Twilight Zone kind of guy at all, but I, I do like to know why it's so prevalent in our particular culture, and we only have our world to really look at. But the Hebrew letter Vav, looking like a hook, it means the word and, if you will, it means connector as well. And in some Kabbalic descriptions, it literally means bringing the future into the past. 
reaching mm. into the past, connecting it and bringing it into the now. And your, yeah. in your book, you discuss the arrow of time being more like a knotted up shoestring where there is no beginning mm. or end. And if I may speculate, time falls over into itself and that's a natural kind of thing. Yeah, and really the only thing, if we look at all of the, the different processes that take place, in physics, they're time symmetrical. They make just as much sense running from future to past as they do from past to future. But there's something about our consciousness that imposes linear time on the universe. And, and it makes sense for us to make any sense out of what's happening. We have to see some order to it where a past cause elicits a future effect and, and we learn from that and it's a standard part of our understanding our upbringing our culture but yeah in the presence of a time machine igor Novikov, who i i cite heavily in the book because he's a, a brilliant mind and one of the most foremost scholars on time and time travel points out that that the future can actually dictate events that occur in the past even though it falls outside of our general understanding of this process, but the future can dictate events occurring in the past because the future, present, and past are all one, and none of them are ahead of or behind the other in the presence of a time machine. So if there is an ability to move through time, it completely disassociates us from that linear arrow of time. And you can have reverse causality as we understand it. You can have the future influencing the past, which influences the future. And, and if you understand it that way in the context of these closed timeline curves and these loops, there isn't a beginning. It's like, I think I said in the book, it's like trying to find the corner of a ball. It doesn't exist. There's no beginning or end to that ball. It's just all one entity. And the same thing exists when you have the ability to travel through time. You can have something create itself. You can have an invention, an idea, if planted into the past, giving rise to that future thing without any real creator, where the past doesn't create the future, the future doesn't create the past. It's just always existed as this self-consistent series of events that are linked through time. You're saying essentially that technology itself may have reverse engineered itself into existence on several occasions. It's possible, yeah. In the presence of a time machine, even ideas that could be placed into the past could result in that same idea or something that's produced from it in the future. And an interesting example, whether you believe the Roswell crash happened or not, it still makes for a really interesting thought experiment where if that was a craft developed thousands of years in our future by us with advanced technologies that were derived over that thousand year period, if it did come crashing into the desert of 1947, and we were able to study these things and figure out how they worked and how the materials were made, we could eventually develop the same craft that comes crashing into 1947. And, and then it gets developed again, and then it crashes again. And when that happens, you can't say that the people from the future developed it because its unfortunate demise in 1947 and the reverse engineering of it is what led to that. But you also can't say the people in 1947 created it because they were gifted this finished product from a very distant point in the future. But while we see that as a paradox, while it goes against our normal notions of causality, there's nothing 
about that that's paradoxical. It doesn't violate any aspects of causality. It can just exist as something that nobody really created, but that has always existed. I know that there's people listening to this program right now that are that want to ask you, so I'm going to ask, how are these time machines constructed? What is the modality? How many different forms? You must have done some research into that, and I speculate maybe you've spoken to a few people. Explain, if you will, because everything sounds great, but how's it done? Yeah, that's one of the most interesting parts for me in researching and writing this book was to really look into what our current understanding of time and the, the potential for backward time travel might be. And what's interesting is is going back to really when we first started to understand time and space in more concrete terms was largely Einstein's contribution and specifically in 1915 when he published his papers on general relativity and one of his former advisors, Herman Minkowski, also contributed a great deal to our understanding of the geometry of space-time. And together, they really put forth a whole new understanding of the way time and space can be warped. And it wasn't long after he put this out, especially his um, 10 field equations, that people started to realize that there's ways to warp space-time. Josef Lenz, Hans Thuring, in 1918, published a paper demonstrating that, that massive objects with rotation can warp space-time in the general vicinity around them. So if you take, for instance, a bowling ball and put it inside a tub of maple syrup and you spin that bowling ball, it causes the syrup right around it to also rotate. And that same thing happens with space-time where you can have a warpage of space-time in association with the rotation of a massive or highly energetic body. And we see this with black holes and neutron stars. And then Van Stockham, Godel, Tipler, a number of other researchers over the following decades demonstrated how you can actually do this with physical forms. You can have a rotating cylinder of dust initially or a rotating universe. Frank Tipler was one of the first, a, a well-known physicist, the first to demonstrate that a rotating disk of finite length, uh, a ring singularity as he called it, could also create these closed time-like curves. And it doesn't have to be infinitely long or have parameters that, that aren't obtainable, but it could be the rotation of a massive or energetic ring or disk. And so if you look at the evolution of our understanding of how to warp space-time, you can see this common theme of rotation, mass, energy, magnetism. And we have this expression in biology that form follows function. And if we look at the form of these UFOs themselves, these disk-shaped craft with highly electromagnetic properties, they would appear to also have the function of reversing time and creating closed time-like curves. So it's, it's very possible that the UFO is the actual time machine itself. I was reminded of another memory, thanks to your discussion of the circular movement, and I remember being in an actual centrifuge. <laughs> I know that's, that's a little bit more out there than the anal probes, but it actually, <laughs> it actually happened. I don't know much of what happened after that, but there was sort of a spacesuit type of garment available and then a congealing of a, I don't know if you want to call it an astronaut or a intratemporal, what have you, but that being congealed in red. And I huh. remember in your book, you discussed colors on these 
IFOs, not the UFOs, but they're identified flying objects. And there's something about that bending of light and space that is colorful because I couldn't understand in my logic why a UFO would need to tool around at night with lights on to begin with. I mean, yeah. what's the point of that? Right. Yeah, I've heard that from a few people, actually. What's with the lights? You know, it seems like they're trying to keep from being observed. So why would they have lights on them? But yeah, in the context of warping space-time, uh, electromagnetism, light being a part of the electromagnetic spectrum, likely has something to do with it, as does magnetism. If we look at it in the context of rotation, light appears to play a role. And certainly light is important in the context of time. It's what allows us to perceive time in certain ways or how our brain processes the light that's coming into our eyes it has to do a lot with consciousness and our conscious perception of time. But it's also the speed limit of the universe. 300,000 kilometers per second dictates not just how fast things can go, but how time passes in your localized reference frame relative to others in relation to that speed limit of light. So, yeah, I think light isn't just to see in the dark when they're flying around, but has some pretty strong tie-ins with their ability to traverse time and space. I'm a journalist, I'm not a scientist, so does light break down atomically like we do? And I'm talking about teleportation. How do these future descendants of ours take us out of a room and put us somewhere else without opening a door or window? Oh, that's a really good question. I wish I had an answer to it as well. <laughs> In the book, I'm sure you notice that when I don't know the answer to something, I'm quick to point that out or to at least acknowledge that there's some things we can't know. And I, I honestly have no idea because, yeah, you're right. A lot of people describe being pulled through a wall or out a window that's closed. And there's something about the light beam that they're in that allows that to happen. If I had to speculate, and again, this is just speculation, I would maybe guess that they're able to do that by changing the time within that beam of light. If they are able to manipulate time with light somehow, and they're pulling someone through a wall that didn't exist 100 years before, now that wall's not there, and they're able to just move through it. But I honestly have no idea. That's the best explanation I've come up with on the spot here, because it's definitely an amazing ability that we don't have the ability to do now and probably won't for a very long time. I like your speculation, though. It makes it makes total sense. And, and audience, what I can tell you about the book is when you read it or if you download it like I did with audiobooks, the detail, the academic attention spent to this without any real woo-woo or speculation, it's all science fact. Of course, you can't really describe time travel any better than than we've just done or dr masters has done but there's no silliness in here what i don't like about some of these programs which i've watched on tv and some of the the, the conferences i've attended and, and i haven't attended many because i'm just bored out of my mind and i'm with people that just don't have a life no offense to any of you out there uh <laughs> <laughs> listening to the program but i'm I, I know there's probably been some uh contempt against you when you've attended some of these conferences will you continue to do so in the future yeah um no you're right there's quite a broad range of people and belief systems at these events however I do feel like it's changing and changing for the better. I feel like people are starting to realize that to truly understand the oddities of this phenomenon and to get an idea of what's actually happening and who they are and how they're doing it, 
that we need to start asking hard questions. We need to demand more from people talking about it. And there's career ufologists. There's people that make money off of saying things and getting crowds at these conferences. And we should be asking hard questions. We should take everyone and what they're saying with a grain of salt, including me and my research. But I do feel like it's changing where people are starting to demand more from the presenters and the speakers and the researchers. And there's still some that just jump on board with whatever some UFO celebrity says, and they buy the things they sell. And and that's fine if they're in it for the entertainment. But for those that are serious about this question and trying to get to the bottom of it, yeah, I think we definitely need to to look closer at what's being said, who's saying it, what their motivations for saying things are. And in the conferences that I've been invited to speak at, I couldn't believe how many other academics were there, just kind of hiding in the back, waiting in the wings to talk. But there's been quite a, a few physicists and anthropologists, sociologists, geologists who I've met at my table or after talks at, at the banquets who are just really interested in this phenomenon and, and want to know more about it. But like yourself, are looking for a more grounded perspective and not just the silliness that gets bantered around. And it's harmful for the field itself. People aren't going to take it seriously if there's just crackpots saying crazy things, just speculating wildly about things that they have no basis for. It makes it easier for people to dismiss the phenomenon as a whole. And I think to really get this conversation into the mainstream, we have to have a much more conservative approach to it. Thank you for that, by the way. And speaking of mainstream, while this is not a mainstream program, it does typically deal with financial concerns, commodities, things like gold, silver, platinum, palladium, biotech, things of that nature. And I am attempting to make that bridge between our conversation and the currency of this planet, <laughs> which is currency. What is the currency in time travel, sir? Hmm. Well, it's an interesting question, not one I've thought about until now, but I don't know if we can have an intertemporal currency until there's really broad-based disclosure and knowledge of what's happening. Even in looking at the history of money in the United States, it used to be commodity money where it was the gold or silver itself, and then over time it was fractionally backed, and then there's fiat money, credit money, but it took us standardizing it in our own country in order to be able to use it in different places. And that same thing might have to happen across time as well, where you couldn't just show up 5,000 years in the past and bust out whatever money that you had from that time. You'd have to convert it or go into the archives, probably break into the Smithsonian and rob some displays to get money from whatever time you were about to go to just to be able to to operate within that economic system. But I guess once we had really broad-based intertemporal interaction, you could have exchange rates across different times maybe. You could have in the same way where you go across the seas and you go and exchange your money for the local currency there. You could potentially have that with different time periods as well, but that would most likely be in the very distant future, I would think. Let's bring it home to today a little bit. In our pre-interview, you spoke about being contacted by financial concerns, even NASA. Yeah, it's been really interesting. It's like I say in the book, I've written it for my academic colleagues just as much as anyone interested in the UFO phenomenon, because I think there's a lot of applications really in different areas of science and, and economics being one of them as well, where 
you know, what are the implications of potentially having information from the future influence the past? Or there's the classic example, one of the best movies about, in fact, was Back to the Future 2, where Biff, I believe it was his name, gets a time machine and gives himself all of these stocks and sports teams to pick. And he, he makes a fortune off of having knowledge from the future. And, and if we think about this phenomenon in the context of the implications there's vast implications for anthropology, sociology, the psychology of people who suddenly have to wrap their heads around something very different from their normal everyday lives. And the economics, too. What might be the economic influence on the stock market in the present day if these craft just suddenly come busting into our time and say, hey, were you from the future? What's that going to do to the stock market in a reactionary sense. What's that going to mean for long-term investment opportunities where we see these craft technologies, possibly name brands written on things where now we know that that's going to be something in the future. At what point does that company exist that we then invest in it to make money off of that thing that we know is going to exist in the future and be profitable? So I think there's a lot of reasons why we should be talking about this in all of these different areas, including finance. And, and I commend you for having this conversation on your show. Thank you. Do you think those openings are going to come from the future or does it take us here in the, I guess, what is the present and the past to reach out somehow? And how can we do that without grasping at straws? But isn't that what science is anyway? Yeah, I mean, again, it comes back to this whole chicken and egg thing. What do we learn from the future or what do we do on our own that just becomes something that does exist more linearly without any sort of intertemporal influence. So I don't know. Like I said, it's interesting to think about Roswell and if that did happen and this was technology gifted from the future into the past, how does that impact its own creation? But on a, a, a local level, on a smaller scale, yeah, there could be any number of things that just happen to result in these things in the future. And one thing to keep in mind is that we're talking about beings, hominins, future hominins that look very different from us. And that would indicate that they exist many thousands, possibly tens of thousands of years in our future. However, that doesn't necessarily mean that time travel and our ability to do this exists that far into our future. It could just be that we don't have really any incentive to travel into the recent past. We have archives, we have documents, we don't need to or really want to look at such approximate period in our own past. So there may be this period between now and a couple thousand years in the future where we do develop time travel technology, but we're afraid of maybe gifting knowledge to people too close to our own time, or there's just really no incentive to look at people or what we're doing in those earlier times. And, and that may be a part of why we only see beings that look so different, where there's just so much separation that a lot of this information has gotten lost and they're trying to rediscover the past in the same way that anthropologists do today. As much as I'm obsessed about time travel, I it doesn't make any sense to actually do it <laughs> to the past. I mean, if you go back to the 70s, you're going to inhale a bunch of cigarette smoke. Uh, in the 60s, there's <laughs> a whole bunch of other issues. Prior to that, there's racial issues. It just doesn't make sense. But that, does that mean it's, it's not happening yet? Well, I mean, I guess that's kind of what I was trying to get at is, is we know what took place in the 60s and 70s and all of the cultural changes. And there weren't really a lot of biological differences that we might be interested in studying. I could be somewhat biased too in my explanation here. 
because as a paleoanthropologist, I study very distant periods of the hominin past. I worked at a Neanderthal site in southern France that was about 150,000 years old, an Australopithecus site in South Africa that was about 3.5 million years old, and that's where my interest lies. But if you ask that same question to a, a historian, they might give you a different answer. They might say, oh, there's so much value in going back 50 years and studying what people were doing and how they were doing it. But in the context of archives and records, there really isn't. If we still have access to information in the recent past, there's really no incentive to do it. But in these UFO reports, there are people described as being altogether human. The Nordics, Nordic characteristics are described a lot. East Asian characteristics are described a lot, but still quintessentially human individuals that look just a little different from us. So yeah, that could potentially indicate that we're not too far from that potentiality. And before we wrap it up, if you wouldn't mind giving a brief description of why alien logic and UFOs just doesn't work, it doesn't make sense. And, and I always felt uncomfortable as a human being on this planet, like it's not a natural state of being. There's gravity, there's pain, there's issues. Things aren't entirely comfortable being a hominid. And you state that it may just be very, very unique to be a hominid. Right, yeah, no, it's, it's an interesting thing to me where... I, I also enjoy science fiction. I've, I've enjoyed it a lot more after writing this book for whatever reason. But yeah, it's, it's funny to me how in all of these different TV shows and movies, the people from different planets are people. They're always people. And that could just simply be because we need actors and actors happen to be bipedal and have human forms. But they always know how to speak English and they just have a strange accent, but still very much, oh, they speak English in this star cluster, 15 late years away. That makes sense. Um, but no, it's it's very unlikely that they would be anything like us. And that's for a couple of reasons, very briefly. One is that we have a very unique history on this planet. Uh, what it took for primates even to exist, it took the dinosaurs being killed off and mammals to come out from underground with their homeothermy and then to go up in the trees, and then for us to come down from the trees and to walk bipedally. All of those things are very unique to our lineage. And we're, in fact, one of the only, we are the only habitual biped, the only habitually upright walking primate. And it's very rare among, among mammals as well. So the fact that we don't see it very commonly on this planet indicates that it's probably going to be even less likely on other planets, and especially those planets that have a larger mass than Earth. Because you're right, we suffer from a lot of problems with our knees and our backs, and childbirth and hemorrhoids and hernias and all kinds of other things that indicate that we're kind of at the upper limit of where you could have a bipedal humanoid form like ourselves. So on, and most other planets discovered as part of the Kepler mission are quite a bit larger. Earth is smaller or as big as only 2% of all of the other planets that have been discovered. So they're all much bigger than planet Earth, which indicates that our form of locomotion, what defines us as a species, as hominins, isn't likely to exist on other planets in other star systems. So dolphins just aren't going to time travel or get on a spaceship <laughs> and warp, warp drive. <laughs> oh, you're right. There's there's other things, too, like the free use of our hands. The reason we are so sophisticated or a big part of it is because we stood upright, too. So, yeah, it'd be hard for them to type on computers or make spaceships with their little flippers. You're right. They're in incredibly intelligent, as are many other mammals. But 
and non-mammals as well. But yeah, they're just not likely to look like us or be able to do the things that we can do with our highly dexterous digits that, again, are the result of bipedalism. The book is Identified Flying Objects, a Multidisciplinary Academic Approach to the UFO Phenomenon. Dr. Masters, Michael, thank you so much for joining me today on the program. Thank you. It's been really great talking to you. I appreciate it. Once again, I've been speaking with Dr. Michael P. Masters, anthropologist and author of Identified Flying Objects, a Multidisciplinary Academic Approach to the UFO Phenomenon. This incredible book is a must-read or listen. Available on Amazon and also downloadable on Audible. If you have questions or comments on this segment, send them to me, martinreports at gmail.com. And subscribe to our weekly newsletter by going to the website, ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Join us next time for more opportunities to discover on the Ellis Martin Report. Meanwhile, subscribe to the Ellis Martin Report. It's easy and it's free. Visit ellismartinreport.com.